Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 54, Return Part 3, recorded here on May 18th, 2023. Thanks for joining me today. I'd like to give a continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp, and today's intro is from the song Black Coffee, and our outro is from the song Black Licorice. I have some corrections. In episode 51, Control, I stated that building a park to clone dinosaurs in is easier if you have, quote, $300 million. I was referring to Hammond's pachyderm portfolio, the fundraising he secured with Gennaro's help. But I was totally wrong about that. The pachyderm portfolio raised $870 million. So I was way off on that. Uh, I must apologize to my family for thinking I could substitute white wine with white wine vinegar in a fish sauce. Uh, Let's say it was not a big hit, but it sort of made a good salad dressing, but I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, nor will I be sharing the recipe. And finally, I predicted the the Toronto Maple Leafs would lose in Game 7 in the most embarrassing way possible in Round 1, but they didn't. And I couldn't be more happy to be wrong about that, but that said, knowing their playoffs fate today, uh, I'm also not happy with how they died out, so mm, nobody's happy when when your team loses. Uh, In Dinosaur News... Our first article is from the journal Pier J and was published in November 2017 called An Exceptionally Preserved Armored Dinosaur Reveals the Morphology and Allometry of Osteoderms and Their Horny Epidermal Coverings. The paper admits a true understanding of the structure and morphology of ankylosaurs epidermal keratinized coverings is, quote, greatly limited. The paper set out to analyze the keratinous elements and see their relationship to bony elements, becoming, quote, the first allometric analysis of ornithischian soft tissues. The paper studied the holotype of Borealopelta, which is an exquisitely preserved nodosaurid, and reviewed 172 osteoderms cataloging their spine length and height, and found they were positively allometric with respect to basal length and width. Quote, despite tight correlations between the different measures amongst all other osteoderms, the large periscapular spines represent consistent outliers. Thickness and relative contribution of the keratinized epiosteodermal scales and sheaths varies greatly by region, ranging from 2% to 6% for posterior thoracics to around 25% of the periscapular spines, similar to the horn sheaths in some bovid analogs. The results indicating that the interior portion of the osteoderm series near the animal's front is both highly variable and has species-specific morphology, providing new insights into the function and evolution of these structures. In other studies, similar results have been obtained from analysis of the exaggerated structures of most other ornithischian clades, like Hadrosauridae, Ceratopsia, and Pachycephalosauria. So in other words, how do the, the osteoderms and the spikes and the bones and stuff like that that are at the front of an animal's body on their head, and, in, and so when we're talking about like Triceratops or, or Hadrosaurs with their bony crests or Pachycephalosaurs with their crazy ornate uh, bones and structures that are coming out of their skulls, and similar to Ankylosaurus, how are the horns and spikes and, and things like that coming out of their shoulders? How are these helping and in what ways? And these studies, with all of these ornithischian clades, suggest uh, the hypothesis that these exaggerated structures may have functioned and evolved in the context of sociosexual selection. Until now, similar hypotheses proposed of thy- thyreophorans were nothing but conjecture. 
as they lacked, quote, commensurate morphometric backing. And the results are most strongly supported by the, quote, periscapular spine, where this element both shows a different pattern of scaling than the rest of the series and absolute sizes of the keratin sheath and bony core are similar to the horns of today's extant bovids, like cattle, and the relative sizes similar to the horns of some extant reptiles, both of which are thought to function for sociosexual display. So this paper further hypothesizes that combined with the recent evidence, the spine may have been pigmented differently than the rest of the osteoderms, functioning as a visual sociosexual display signal with members of the same species as well. So they are proposing that uh, these spines at the front of, a, of, a, of an ankylosaur or a notosaur uh, that kind of project forward or whatever could have been very, very visible uh, and in very interesting ways, which is pretty exciting. Uh, our second article comes from the journal Cretaceous Research, and it's from March 2023, and it's about a new velociraptor-like dinosaur. Described from isolated sacrum fragments, manual ungual phalanges, and a third metatarsal from the Yalovac formation in Tajikistan, the authors refer some new materials to a recently named dromaeosaurid theropod called Cansignathus sogdianus. Consignathus was described in 2021 and identified as the basal most Asiatic velociraptorine yet known, and the oldest known member of its clade in Asia and perhaps even worldwide. Its name is derived from Kansai, which is the Russian name of the locality the holotype was discovered, and the Greek word nathos, meaning jaw, and the specific name refers to Sogdiana, which is an ancient region in Central Asia. So this is the Kansai jaw from Central Asia, and it's also the first non-avian dinosaur to be described from Tajikistan. The authors were able to refer these new skeletal elements to consignathus by matching the dentary between the two specimens uh, in a trip to the phylogenetic analysis machine results, and this critter being the oldest velociraptorine in Asia, and quite possibly in the whole world. So it would be very basal most, at the, the very node where uh, velociraptors begin to take their shape and evolve into what they would later become, um, and that was possibly done in, in Asia. Uh, and of course we know velociraptors from Mongolia, so they didn't actually travel very far uh, over those years. All right, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Okay, today's guest is the University of Maryland's principal lecturer and vertebrate paleontologist in their Department of Geology, as well as a member of the Scientific and Education Advisory Council for the Maryland Academy of Science, a research associate for the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, and adjunct faculty for the Behavior, Ecology, Evolution, and Systematics program of the U of M's College of Chemical and Life Sciences and also an author and the editor for books like The Complete Dinosaur and the Tyrannosaurid Paleobiology, as well as a consultant or advisor for the BBC, the History Channel, the Discovery Channel for programs like Walking with Dinosaurs 3D, Dinosaur Revolution, Planet Dinosaur, Prehistoric Assassins, Monsters Resurrected, and on and on and on. Uh, it's Thomas R. Holtz Jr. Thank you for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Sure. Glad to be here. Uh, I don't think I mentioned that you're teaching all the time. Is that right, too? And so you're fitting me in when you're not greeting. <laughs> Yes, this spring semester has just wrapped up, so uh, grades are in, people are graduating, and now it's time for a little bit of breath, but there's still a bunch of work that needs to get done, so that's the that's just the life. Awesome, and then, it, so I saw too that you do um, field, is it classes in the field too, so is that every year you're going to? Um, I do, uh, I have done classes in the field, uh, plus I don't do that every year, unfortunately, I do, however, try to get out in the field every year mm -hmm. uh, to keep, you know, my hand in. And over the last decade, pretty much every summer, uh, with the exception of the pandemic years, I got out to southeastern Montana with the crew from the Burpee Museum, which are a, it's a mid-sized 
uh, Museum in Rockford, Illinois, so sort of greater Chicagoland, most famous for the specimens, uh, the specimen Jane, which is a, uh, a teenager Tyrannosaurid, probably Tyrannosaurus rex. And in fact, the sites that I work are in that same general area, uh, looking at the Hell Creek, the, the end of the age of dinosaurs, and finding whatever we can find there. So, Well, this is excellent. Okay, so... Um... People won't know this, but uh, Tom and I met when George Harrison and Jeff Lynn came up with the idea to bring George, Jeff, me, uh, and Tom, and, and Roy Orbison and Tom Petty t- together and calling ourselves the Traveling Wilburys, leading us to create hit albums like the Traveling Wilburys Volume 1 and Traveling Wilburys Volume 3, which is unfortunate because Tom, you and I were most prominent in Volume 2, and nobody seems to ever talk That's about right. that one. <laughs> but, uh, but we got to, to be a part of a Grammy Award-winning rock performance by a gr- duo or a group, and we got to meet Bob Dylan. So I, uh, I played Triangle. Tom, what instrument did you play? Oh, uh, well, there was washboard, and then uh, the one song, um, the one song was tambourine as well. So, <laughs> do you have? Uh, do you keep any memorabilia from from those days? Uh, I used to, but it burned out in uh, the, the great truck fire of uh, you know a couple decades ago. So, I, I stole Bob Dylan's harmonica. Oh, there you go. And it smells funny. <laughs> I, well, as one might expect. And it turns out today, <laughs> May 24th, I didn't realize this until I was doing some looking into it. It's Bob Dylan's birthday. So happy, oh, my goodness. Yeah, happy Victoria Day to, uh, to Bob Dylan. <laughs> so speaking of other anniversaries like that, uh, we're nearing Jurassic Park's 30th anniversary. Are you a fan of the movie? Are you a fan of the novel? What's, uh, which, how does it enter your life and change the way you do things? <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so, you know, read the novel when it came out. Uh, just so, sort of for my perspective, uh, I was uh, finishing up as a graduate student. I was finishing up as a grad stu- graduate student when the novel came out, and I had recently gotten my PhD when the movie came out. Mm-hmm. There, although there's a lot of similarities between the book and the movie, uh, the movie is far more Spielbergian. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> as a consequence, I think because of that is sort of a much better remembered piece of work in that it has heart, I think, in a way that the, uh, the novel didn't. But both of them, it, although we nitpicked, because, you know, academics, yeah. that's our job, <laughs> uh, the, those of us who were around at the time nitpicked the hell out of both the book and the movie, at least both Crichton and Spielberg made an effort to try and incorporate what was then the new discoveries in the field in terms of their work. Sure, there are things that I would have done differently and things that I railed against at the time, but it was, both of them were leaps and bounds better than most of the other comparable sorts of things that were available at that time or before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't, when we saw dinosaurs on screen, sure, they did silly things like, you know, making the dwarf version of Dilophosaurus with a frilled lizard frill and spitting poison, but it was still a theropod dinosaur walking on its hind legs. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a, an iguana or a monitor lizard wearing rubber falsies <laughs> on a set with people, you know, green screened in going, ah, 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 as it went by. So when, when there were problems with things, at least the referent that we could use was something that was closer to the reality that we knew than, than the older days. And I think, too, the, the animals weren't just single-minded chasing machines 
They, there was a lot of interesting behaviors and experiences, relationships that uh, the characters got to build between the animals, uh, both in the book and in, in, in the film as well. They, they, it wasn't just always running away. There were, there were times exactly. to get close and kind of intimate with some of them, which I think was, was a nice touch. In Crichton certainly incl- included quite a few interesting behaviors that were, you know, always going to be uh, fabricated. But right. well informed, or at least uh, well thought out. And so, I mean, in mm-hmm. some ways, I mean, uh, the frill on a Dilophosaurus isn't too practical. As if you're going to catch something, you want to maybe keep, you know keep the frill <laughs> hidden yeah, exactly. so that you don't scare it away as you try to eat it. But <laughs> right, it's like the you know the ambush hunter that's getting out there and once they're about to make the strike, they get out their maracas and start <laughs> shaking them around. You it know, is... that's uh, not exactly conducive to success. <laughs> For sure. Well, I could—I mean, I could never see uh, Jurassic Park for the first time as an adult, and so there were right. really just the majesty of it all. Like, I mean, it was—it was a mm-hmm. shock to the system to a to a young teen, if a teen, uh, <laughs> as a youngster, yeah. that's a lot to take in. You're scared, and when it's just at the end and everybody's safe, you're like, "Wow, what a journey!" But as an adult, you go, "Wait a minute, that ending's a little tied together there." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and certainly, as an academic, that was uh, looking at these things. Yeah, you're right. You would. You don't see it with the same, perhaps, free pass that the, a youngster might. Right. But, you know, still, um, you know, Spielberg was at the top of his game uh, at the mm-hmm. time he made this movie. Its pacing is really effective. I mean, for a special effects laden movie of the mid 90s, it holds up pretty well today in almost every way imaginable in terms of, of pacing, you know, uh, the dialogue, sure, it's it's campy, but it's Spielberg campy. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, um, you know, the effects, they were limited, and he knew what to do with those limitations. Mm-hmm. So that it, it really sticks together that, you know, some special effects-laden movies that would have been 10, year or 10 years younger than it don't hold up as well. Mm-hmm. It was justifiably, you know, a big event the summer it came out uh, as a movie. And it had the associated bonus of allowing, you know, me and others to talk about the things we love with the public that could understand them better. Mm-hmm. Like, I know this is, this is impossible for people who are younger to imagine, but prior to the release of Jurassic Park, the movie, no one in the public had heard the word Velociraptor. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that name was unknown. Uh, that, that, that name had about the same amount of resonance in society as Delta Dromius mm-hmm. would be today. Mm-hmm. Um, no one outside dino fans and paleontologists knew of the name Velociraptor. But now it's one of the most favorite dinosaurs for a lot of people, and that's entirely due mm-hmm. uh, to Jurassic Park. Yeah, I had a, a picture book-ish. I had a Dougal Dixon mm. book uh, uh, for kids, uh, but it was awesome. And Velociraptor was in it, but I didn't know how to pronounce it. And when Henry Wu says it for the first time on screen, I was like, wait a minute. Uh. <laughs> 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 and it was, I was learning things as we went. And he just passed it off like, oh, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a Velociraptor. He's like, what, 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 what? <laughs> he was so matter-of-fact about it. I thought, oh, I, thought, I have no idea what I'm saying anymore. <laughs> You know, how, how about the se- so we know the first movie, the the, the, the sequels, um, and the remaining films. Wh- how's your impression of of how things have gone since then? And are you astonished that it's had this lasting power as well? Um, yeah, it, it is. It's kind of amazing that it did. Uh, that's lasted as well, or at least that it in 
very appropriate for, for Jurassic, the Jurassic Park franchise, seemed to have gone extinct and then was resurrected. <laughs> um, that, you know, the, the second movie, they did, they touched on some nice new things to throw in there, some new, new dinosaurs. They had the, the thing everyone was waiting for, which was dinosaurs rampaging in a modern city. Mm-hmm. They, they actually did some nice thought about how one would approach this sort of project. And that is, you don't put all the stuff on one island. You've got multiple sites, you know, if you're rich enough to do that. So I liked, you know, the, the site two idea concept. It ended on an extremely nice note with the idea of, you know, they should be left alone. The third one was sort of the case of, okay, so they're still going to make these, are they? <laughs> um, you know, it's it wasn't horrible. It's just there wasn't really that much necessity to make it mm-hmm. other than, you know, they wanted another movie. There wasn't that much of a new story to tell. And then, you know, we went on the hiatus. And then it comes back. Uh, with Jurassic World. I happen to like that one fairly well. I know a lot of a lot of my uh, colleagues did. Now, there were some things about it I was really disappointed with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the fact that they still use the old-fashioned models. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, they have the throwaway line. So at least they're treating in-universe, you know, Henry Wu's line. But, you know, that's fair enough, um, you know, that they're, if we sh- if we show them the way they were supposed to be, people wouldn't recognize them, which yeah. is true. Um, that said, they really missed an opportunity because just like Spielberg and company had done and show people of the 1990s, the dinosaurs that we perceived in the 1980s, here was a chance to show people in the 20-teens and 2020s how we understood dinosaurs in the aughts and teens. Uh, and they didn't. They showed us dinosaurs how we understood them in the yeah. 1950s, the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the stegosaurs on Jurassic World are even less modern than the stegosaurus in the second ter- in, the, in the Lost mm-hmm. World, mm-hmm. Uh, at least in terms of its, its shape and so forth, uh, which was a shame. On the other hand, um, it was nice to see how the park was supposed to operate. Yeah, that I was mean, kind that of- was the thing. It isn't. It, it, they weren't trying to create a natural environment that was never within sto- within story. That was never the idea. It was going to be an amusement park. They showed how that worked. That was kind of cool. Yeah. And it was kind of cool to see. It was a big deal. And it was also, I think, very realistic to show that the corporations are going to screw stuff up mm. and they're not going to care about, you know, resurrecting the, the proper dinosaurs. They want the more that they want the more teeth. Also, the movie is turned out to be a cinematic triumph in that, in the background, in the scene, in the kid's bedroom, there's a copy of my book. Oh, excellent. So, because of that, that once, once, once I had that confirmed by someone doing a screenshot on Blu-ray, uh, I said, okay, because I, I thought I saw it there, but you know, I could have been hallucinating. Um, and then they did a screenshot. Okay, now I know it is a cin- cinematic masterpiece. Um, which also, as someone pointed out, this suggests that I, that I exist in the, and, and Louis Ray, the artist okay. exists in the world of Jurassic world, which is cool. That is wonderful. Um, so yeah, exactly. So that one, you know, uh, so overall I, I, I liked it. it. It was, yes, I wasn't fond of the dinosaurs themselves, but as a story, I don't think it was bad. And I thought it was nice to sort of show some of the natural progressions one would get from the first one. Although, 
And in some ways, they didn't even touch on this. The idea of feeding a relatively endangered animal, a uh, great white shark, every, every day to your, your, your mosasaur, presumably it's every day, because you know, at first I thought, you know, that's kind of horrible, but then in a world where, where extinction isn't eternal, Mm-hmm. You know, you begin to wonder how people would treat endangered animals. Yes, that's right. Um, so you got like the seed libraries where they keep uh, all kinds of stuff just in case. Imagine that. You just have a, right. a DNA laboratory. Every animal is safe now. The extinction isn't even a exactly. factor. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, so it, it, would, it really, it might really twist our ideas of how we do conservation. Oh, yeah. People would be uh, careless. And, you know, that, and that's, oh, man. that's me coming at it from a science fiction fan point of view and a little bit more hardcore science fiction. You, you, it would not be our world plus dinosaur parks. Mm. There would be, this technology would have transformed aspects of our society mm-hmm. um, that they never really quite explored as much. The second of the Jurassic World movies, um, <laughs> well, one thing that people in the Jurassic World universe have to learn is that, that genomes are just code. You don't have to go to this effort of breaking into an abandoned Jurassic world and fighting off dinosaurs and mosasaurs to find the bone. You just have to break into someone's computer and copy down all the A, T, C's and G's in the text file. It's just literally a text file all they would need to get that genome. There's nothing magic about DNA. So that part of it is, no, Um, (laughs) I, you know, certainly would not be um, surprised at a, world where you know the one percenters are trying to auction off the most you know these these dinosaurs it's sort of funny that real life dinosaurs go for cheaper than partial dinosaur skeletons Mm -hmm. in our world in the actual numbers Uh, you know that hey you know who would who would have known when they filmed it that someone would sell a t-rex skeleton for 32 million dollars in a couple years unbelievable right Um, right you know, I did like the Stiggy Moloch whacking the hell out of all the uh, the folks down there who were auctioning off on the poor dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked story wise the implicate the, the fact that they were they, they were beginning to explore this bigger question about this technology and the fact that we have a cloned person in it and that that was um, you know a point of tension. I wish they could have done a little more with that or gone in a different direction in the third movie with the implications of that. But I understand, you know, that's getting a little further afield from dinosaurs. One one interesting and sort of personal connection to it, sort of, was this meme that has arisen of centrosaurine dinosaurs with holes where the fenestrae are on their frills. And the reason that's sort of a personal connection is that I worked on the Walking with Dinosaurs 3D movie where Patchy, the um, one of the, the the hero Pachyrhinosaurus in there, has a hole punched through that, and that's a pathology you, you see at the beginning of the movie when he's bitten, and that's mm-hmm. how he has that hole. And the sad thing is, other people seeing the movie or at least seeing the toys from it or something began to make other models that had those holes there as holes. Yeah. Until the point where you know. The Sinoceratops in that has the holes in it as a natural state. So, no, it's covered with skin. But um, that was sort of a little odd bit. And those of us who had worked on the project, on the WWD 3D, uh, were saying, oh, my God. But um, And then the most recent one, 
you know, yeah. like, like, uh, like, um, Malcolm said, Hey, you do want to have some dinosaurs at this dinosaur movie uh, <laughs> because you could practically have done the third movie without dinosaurs and it would still be mostly the same movie, uh, which was kind of a shame. I mean, there are obviously are parts that could, you know, wandering around in this new, the new park being threatened by dinosaurs. Okay. You need dinosaurs for that. But the whole, the story about the um, genetically engineered crops and the genetically engineered uh, locusts, okay, they wanted to go a different direction. And I get that. That's fine. Uh, but it would, uh, having it more dino-centric, you know, would have always been nice. It's okay. It's fun. You know, I, ha I have, I got the Blu-ray. So, you know, I've watched <laughs> it multiple times. So I'm not going to go to these people who says, oh, I'm never going to watch that or anything. Yeah, that was... Uh, not necessarily the best note to end on in mm -hmm. some ways, although they did tie up people's storylines for the most part. And I totally get the fact, too, that the this was done during the pandemic. And because of that, it really you really wind up shooting like two or three different movies with only a few scenes that connect them together mm -hmm. for practical purposes. Um, and OK, that's totally fair. Not necessarily how I think many of us would like to have seen the movie go, but on the other hand, uh, you know, dinosaurs attacks, which is what a lot of people thought it was going to be, the dinosaurs rampaging in the rest yeah. of the world. Yeah. yeah, you know, sure, that might have been fun, but on the other hand, realistically, the dinosaurs roaming around the countryside, it would have been a really short movie, because <laughs> even stone-aged humans uh, could take out megafauna without much problem, and we live in a world where in this particular country, especially here, where there's so many heavily armed people uh, that once these things started to become a threat, particularly given their small population right. size, they would have been hunted out really quickly. And so I do like the fact that they weren't killed for the most part. They were captured. And that way, that made sense. That's the way that they've been maintained. Mm -hmm. And that you would get a, a black market in their parts and so forth, because you know that's what people would do. Uh, if there's some way that a criminal enterprise could make some money off of something, they're going to. Well, I think Creighton investigated the the limits to what to what generally dinosaurs in the modern world would look like. And his in the book, he was saying, you know, we'll clone them small and we'll make them pets. That and right, that was exactly, kind of yeah. So yeah. his idea was like that was an idea that Crichton included in this book. Like, because you're right. How else do you practically put wild dinosaurs in the modern world? They don't. They are not going to last. And I think the locust plot was something that wouldn't have been an unusual to be in a Crichton text. It just feels like it yes. would have been an example of one of the nefarious things that another company has done that InGen is not doing. It wouldn't have been a focal point of his story. It would just be a characterization of a villain <laughs> that leads uh, yeah, to yeah. So was, uh, in terms of like it being there, it wasn't a far stretch. It's just unusual to get such a spotlight. But um, I found some other things that you have specifically uh, in common with, with Jurassic Park. This is a good one. Is Johns Hopkins University. Yes. So you share some things with Jurassic Park. Both you and Lewis Dodson, the, the terrible villain in, in the first book, in the second book, in the first movie-ish, and certainly in the last movie, he attends Johns Hopkins University. Ah. Though Lewis Dodson was dismissed by Johns Hopkins as a graduate student for planning gene therapy on human patients without obtaining the proper FDA protocols. Ah, so there we go. So Dr. Dodson was still given a doctorate. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you can get dismissed from this kind of work and still be a doctor. But he went straight <laughs> out of being a doctor there, uh, from, dismissed from that program to being employed by Biosyn, 
So I don't know. Right. <laughs> I don't know how you get dismissed and then retain your credentials. And you'll get the degree, yeah. Um, so as an undergrad at Johns Hopkins, how tempted were you to subject unwitting human patients to gene therapies without their consent? Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, every other day. No, um, <laughs> no thankfully, you know, I was there over in, uh, over in Olin Hall, so the Earth and Planetary Sciences. So, you know, we could have tried gene therapy with, uh, with fossils, but we weren't mm. going to get very far, especially because... In that day and age, we hadn't even recovered any fossil DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would have been, uh, at the time the movie came out, you know, uh, that was sort of a, a, an astonishing concept. And then within a few years, you know, we began to get Pleistocene DNA. And now the oldest definite preserved DNA sequences that have been discovered are back about, you know, two million years. So, mm-hmm. um Obviously nowhere near the Mesozoic, but we are getting further back in time. And um, no one's yet, you know, actually been effectively cloning back these ancient creatures. But at least we've got their, you know, DNA segments and their genomes. And we've made, people have been making various discoveries relevant to both the ancient organisms and their relations to modern organisms Mm -hmm. uh, in all sorts of ways. So that's definitely a, a field of study that has exploded and that was reduced to most people um via jurassic park so mm-hmm. yeah that's right um i think one of the reasons that uh that dodgson was being such a shyster about how he was getting his uh data was because that there there can be meaningful challenges when it comes to acquiring the data you need to 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 move forward or to make it a you know a usable result is is I guess what's the best biggest challenge when you go to do an analysis on a tyrannosaur or something like that? Is it access to others' research, or is it to specimens, or is it lab equipment? Like, what, what sort of what are the big barriers that you might have to get dismissed for for <laughs> to, to climb over? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the biggest challenges, um, and you've hit, you've hit a lot of them. One is you know access to specimens. Um, you know, if particularly depending upon the types of studies you need to do. Uh, typically you're going to have to get up and fly there and make arrangements with the local museum to get there. Mm-hmm. If it's some sort of destructive analysis, like if you're sectioning bones for histological studies, which I, I myself don't do, but plenty of my colleagues do, you need to even make even more arrangements with that uh, museum collection managers and curators to okay that in advance and to make the, take the appropriate precautions and so forth. You know, sharing data typically uh, is done fairly well among researchers, but there are always some who sort of jealously guard their material. A particular issue um, that can be a problem with access to specimens, of course, is the issue of private collectors having acquired specimens and then not allowing people to access them. And of all creatures in the fossil record for which this is a problem, it mm. is the most problem with Tyrannosaurus rex. Okay. That is the sort of the premier creature that, that private collectors want to have. And there are numerous good specimens of Tyrannosaurus that have been acquired by private individuals and where currently researchers don't have access to them. You know, hopefully mm. people can work on them to, uh, to make them accessible into, in the future. But... It can be an issue, especially if you happen to know, you know, from photographs or maybe even seeing the specimens earlier, that there might be some anatomical traits on it that you want to be able to describe and publish on, but you're not allowed to because it's not in a public institution. So um, that can be an issue. And, you know, one of the biggest ones is time. You mm-hmm. know, 
all of us have only so much we can do in you know a given 24-hour period, and we have our day jobs, so that there are plenty of projects we might want to do that we have to put off, or that we have to do piecemeal, one by bit by bit over the years. So those are some of the main ones, and then related to a lot of them, of course, is funding. You know, travel is going to require funding. Your time, that's money, and so forth. So uh, that could be an issue, it's particularly for early career people, especially for early career people who aren't necessarily in a, with a host institution that has a lot of support for that kind of research. Mm. Uh, which is why the, the you know collaborative aspect of science is really important. So that's one way that they can be brought in uh, to projects, you know, with their particular insights, but they don't have to fund all of it themselves or what have you. And why, in general, it's not you know again not universally true by any means, but in general, a community that works together, um, that tries to share information when they can, so that you know the goal is to get the information out there. You know, it can be a challenge when there are are disputes between different researchers or rivalries and so forth. But hopefully, you know, that that's that's more the exception than the rule. Mm -hmm. I think um, in terms of paleontology, there are, are, I think, two instances that come to mind when it comes to what was portrayed in the films versus the, the, the or and, and in the novel as well. We have the, the computer-assisted sonic tomography where Grant is yeah. using the, 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 uh, the cart to, to blast into the earth, which we've kind of right. written off as like, that's not very viable. But then the second thing in Jurassic Park 3 that was, kind of was a little bit uh, precinct in, in terms of what was to come was uh, we get this uh, uh, rapid prototyper. And so he was able to build the, the 3D resonating chamber of the Velociraptor. Now that, right. uh, what we would probably call that a 3D printer now, but um, that, exactly, that yeah. was a bit before its time in terms of like the 3D modeling and things like that. That certainly seems like to be a much more viable <laughs> avenue that science is pursuing in terms of paleontology than the, yeah. uh, the computer-assisted sonic tomography. Um, how have you seen, I guess, what are the new developments that are kind of coming out that are, it sounds like computers and technology and, and uh, virtual spaces, like a lot of that is really changing how accessible things are and if that's going right. to ramp up <laughs> discovery or? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the 3D scans and or um, CT scans, including now micro CT, uh, where we can get structures, you know, down at sort of the cell level of within bone. Uh, only for small objects, because the micro CT scanner itself, the mm -hmm. chamber is not particularly big. That makes it so that, you know, those are data files. And if they're up on the server, um, then researchers elsewhere can access them. And so, you know, you can get and, you know, play around with the specimen in three dimensions. And it might not be 100% as good as working with the real thing, but it's a lot of percentage on the way there. So that helps out. Also, you know, sort of newer techniques that are coming out that allow the chemical interpretation of mm. fossils. So, uh, you know, geochemistry, biogeochemistry of various sorts, isotopic chemistry, where is as long as, you know, you got the, there's someone in your team or someone other's team has actually access to the specimen to process them the right way and get results, those results themselves are data tables and they can be shared among different researchers or accessed by other teams later on for various comparative studies. And, um, that's certainly helpful uh, when it's things where it's not just the physical object and you go out there with your calipers and your steel tape to measure them, that these sort of ability to share data, you know, on server space and so forth really helps out. 
One of the things that Ellie Sattler as a paleobotanist does not really do, but it sounds like paleobotanists, generally speaking, are doing very well, is using that um, today anyhow. And certainly, I don't know about how long, but they're able to investigate in a, in a rock sample um, traces of pollen. So if you don't necessarily have a fossil of a, a particular mm-hmm. vegetation, you at least have the, the pollen. And there's indication they, they're able to recreate entire ecosystems just by sampling like little pieces of rock. I understand. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that was that was well established by the time Jurassic Park was out and, and for, you know, decades before Is that, right? that um, um, pollen itself, the material pollen capsules are made out of are really resilient, which is why they fossilize so well. And in fact, the way you process those is you take the sedimentary rock with them in there and you dissolve the rock and the pollen remains. Really? You use actually hydrofluoric acid. So you have to do it under really controlled circumstances. Okay. Because um, it, 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 it's stuff that will dissolve through glass. So you process that out. And yeah, cause, because, you know, any as many of us who suffer from it know, pollen goes everywhere. Yeah. Um, and since it's very distinctive to the level of, you know, a species, you can get a really good representation of the plants that existed in a community at any given moment in time if you've got horizons where the pollen is preserved. And so it's, um, it's used for, for environments, it's used for, for dating the rocks, because as the plants evolve, their pollen comes and goes, they're nice markers of time. And in fact, if you've got nice environmental markers stacked up through time, uh, you can see small scale envi- environmental changes, climate changes and so forth um, throughout a particular record. So we could see, for instance, that the environments in the early part of the Hell Creek Formation, so the, you know, the world of T-Rex, were different than they were in the later part, that they were, uh, there was a warming event that was going on and so forth. So it was a little cooler in the early days of T-Rex. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of thing that without the paleobotany data, uh, we wouldn't be able to know. That's fascinating stuff because, I mean, we have a lake in town. It's a shallow lake. It's only become shallower. Mm. And if you look at it, just a photo 50 years ago, let alone millions of years ago, it has changed in terms of uh, the, sea, the, the the vegetation at the bottom of the lake because it's shallow. A lot of things have changed, uh, and that's just 50 years. I can't imagine the amount of, of interchange in terms of, yeah, what kind of environment they were living in over spans of millions of years. It must have changed all the time because it's always changing. And then, like, where the frosts right. were and where the where the deserts were, and anytime there's a drought, like, things change so fast, geologically speaking. (laughs) Absolutely. Really fascinating stuff. So one of the things I don't quite understand very fully about things, and so I just call it the magical phylogenetic analysis machine, is um, basically the data can be put into this, and then it, by virtue of there being lots of data in it, is able to narrow down the shapes of a particular bone to whom it is related uh, most likely. And uh, I just wonder, when it comes to, like, I guess, codifying a bone, how many, like on each bone, how many points of, of, um, of detail are, are necessary to, because to, it feels like some bones have a lot of differences and some don't, and I don't know, I wonder. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, in general, you know, a phylogenetic analysis is an attempt to reconstruct the evolutionary relationships, basically the family tree among a set of things. You know, normally we're, we're thinking about the relationships between different species, but you could do like individuals within a species. There's slightly different assumptions for that. And you're absolutely right. Different types of bone are going to have different density of information on it. And that's actually going to be true in different groups mm-hmm. uh, of dinosaurs or any sort of organism. So some bones that are sort of simple shafts 
or little rounded knobs may not have a lot of traits, but other ones like say uh, the maxilla, you know, the, the upper, um, the major bone of the upper jaw or the femur, the thigh bone, um, they tend to have a lot of particular features, prongs and processes and, and pits and so forth um, that might vary among different forms. Mm -hmm. And if it's something that varies, uh, but is passed on with descent, then that has the potential for having a signal um, that we can find out the evolutionary relationships. Now, the best of all possible worlds is to use the most data that we can that is varying according to, you know, by, by descent. So it's always better to do analyses that have, you know, the full skeleton rather than individual mm -hmm. bones. Mm -hmm because the chance of one of convergence of, of independent evolution of the same traits in different groups, that's more likely on individual body parts than the whole animal. And so you'll be less likely to be misled. You can still be misled, but you're less likely. <laughs> and then for organisms for whom we have DNA, that adds you know, even a higher level of data because that can, those similarities will, and differences will exist even if we no longer have access to the traits that that DNA was encoding for. So at issues of, you know, the physiology or the, uh, you know, soft tissues or things, uh, which we'd love to be able to use for, you know, our fossil dinos, but we mm -hmm. don't have access to for the most part. Uh, but it, what the result you get is a hypothesis, you know, it is a hypothesis of relationships and therefore it's subject to revision with, with new information. You know, these days people will have, instead of just saying running basically one analysis and saying these are the results they'll run your data of all your observations under different scenarios basically different different models of different algorithms and then where where there's a lot of commonality in your results you can be a lot more confident because by even tweaking it a little a little bit and you're finding the same sort of results mm -hmm. um, that's sort of strong evidence that you're getting a real signal there and then the parts where they're wildly different, that might say, you know, treat these with caution. We'll need more data here. Uh, yeah, and, and so there are, in fact, all sorts of techniques, modeling and subsampling the data and so forth that have been developed, especially in the last 20 years, that take advantage of the speed at which computers operate now, mm -hmm. uh, that would just have blown, blown us away back in the 80s and 90s. And, and would have actually blown our computers apart. They simply couldn't have been, they couldn't have been uh, processed in the lifetime of the universe at the speeds at which the old computer, uh, computers operated. But these newer, newer methodologies can sort through them much faster. Mm -hmm. um, so and that, so that, that is continuing to be refined as time goes by. And so, you know, some people get upset, you know, well, this analysis last year has a totally different result than this year. And yeah, that's true. So that's that. I mean, that's that's science. You know, we, we don't come up with absolute truths. Mm -hmm. uh, we are testing hypotheses. And so keep you know keep in mind that a result is an analytical result. It is not the ca capital T the capital T truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's when we tend to get lots of convergence of information on the same pattern. That's where you should have a lot of confidence. Mm -hmm. One of the big question, or I guess philosophies that uh, Ian Malcolm is very uh, vociferous about in the novel is that there's a scientific era and uh, it was operating under the belief that you could know big truth with a capital T. 
And uh, and his argument was operating, believing that, oh, we'll, we'll get this figured out sooner or later, is a problem. <laughs> you can't put your faith in that because it's somehow believing that, oh, we're closer than ever to this, our beliefs right now being very, very true. And we're just... We're just really close to being it absolutely true. <laughs> and uh, he's like, you, you can't work like that. Um, that is how you are going to get a place like Jurassic Park, and we're all going to get eaten. And uh, <laughs> and so he, he's talking about a post-scientific year where people are, are more, I guess, in the idea like, hey, all of this information is problematic. None of it is certain. <laughs> and uh, mm. and it's really compl- – when you start making declarative certainties on – science that isn't perfect because it's never perfect uh that's when right. you start getting real difficulties and i think we've seen that in the last couple of years where difficulties have arised <laughs> from from matters of that nature um yeah. the, at the end grant is the guy that's like we may never know about all the truths about dinosaurs and so he's the hero that survives he's the one that gets into the raptor nest makes all the discoveries and he's the one admitting freely hey we'll never know how these dinosaurs actually behaved and he's the post-scientific era guy whereas woo and arnold and these guys that were like we're gonna get there we're gonna have this all figured out the system's in control they get um ah uh, true yeah comeuppance <laughs> right <laughs> so right it's an interesting uh they, they, they talk about a paradigm shift and i think that's what it was Crichton was arguing for uh towards the right. end of the book there so that, that's you know paleontology is in the right course <laughs> that's right exactly. cloning may not be but uh, paleontology is um right. so the other day i was warming up we got a softball season starting and mm. uh, i was uh, i was warming up to get ready for uh, for uh, our first game of the year and i twisted my ankle and i should have called it an arctometatarsalian condition and then uh yeah <laughs> i got more sympathy from others but like i couldn't even uh buckle up my sandals my my ankle swelled up so big Ow. but uh one of the first things you got to do uh in, in terms of jumping into to tyrannosaurs and science and, and dinosaurs mm-hmm. and paleontology is a dissertation on a special condition in um is it theropod in theropods, Ankles. yeah. Um, and so I kind of mentioned this on the show earlier. I've had people talking about tyrannosaurs on the show earlier, but this is one that is your baby. So um, yes. uh, I got some questions about it, but maybe you could introduce what made you want to look into it and um, and generally what you discovered. <laughs> sure, yeah. So um, people had recognized for, you know, throughout the 20th century that a couple different groups of the theropods, the carnivorous dinosaur uh, group, had this unusual structural structure of the, the long bones of the foot. So what we call the metatarsals are the long bones of the feet. In, in our case, they're still, they, they form you know, part of the sole of the foot because we were sort of flat-footed animals. Mm-hmm. But if you look at a, a chicken or a cat or a dog, the metatarsals are the part that stick up between the toes and the ankle. And so in most dinosaurs, the metatarsals that support the weight are sort of simple columns. And in most carnivorous dinosaurs, because they, they support their weight on the three inner toes, so two, three, and four, the, the, the three bones of the three, of the three metatarsals are about the same width from the top to the bottom and about the same width as each other. But in ornithomimids, so things like gallimimus, mm-hmm. And in Tyrannosaurids, like Tyrannosaurus, and a handful of other dinosaurs, and these include things like Truodon and things like uh, Chirostenodes and other Canaanathids, um, and the Hardicursorines, little Alvarosaurs, who didn't make it into any of the Jurassic Park movies, but 
for those people who have seen the first season of Prehistoric Planet. Mm -hmm. uh, there's little uh, Mononychus in that. It's got this condition. In those ones, the middle bone, which is number three, is forms a, a, a wedge at the base, and it becomes very narrow at the top, and it gets pinched out by the other two. And in those same feet, the long bones of the feet, the metatarsus is lo longer proportionately and narrower than it is in other carnivorous dinosaurs. Now, people working on fossil mammals, and modern mammals too, back in the early 20th century, had pointed out that most animals that have longer and more slender metatarsi than other ones of the same body size tend to be more cursorial specialists, so mm -hmm. specialists at either higher speed running or agility or locomotion in general. And the idea is that you have a longer stride, and that way you're covering more ground with each stride and you know distance over time and speed. So I looked at these adaptations in these different dinosaurs and proposed that they were based on some hints that other people had suggested earlier, that this formed sort of a shock absorber foot um, and that these were in fact better speed adapted than other comparable sized dinosaurs mm -hmm. so that so um, an ornithomimus would have been faster than, say, an elaphrosaurus, which doesn't have as, as narrow or as, doesn't have a pinched foot as a sort of different structure, and, and certainly more than something like a Utah raptor, so another dinosaur about the same body size with a shorter, stockier foot. And that Tyrannosaurus, you know, may have not been faster than a racehorse, but it would have been faster than a big Acanthosaurus or Giganotosaurus, and certainly than uh, a Triceratops or an Edmontosaurus. And you don't have to be faster than a racehorse if you're not chasing racehorses. Mm -hmm, right. You have to be faster <laughs> than your prey. And subsequently, you know, other researchers have found that, um, that this foot is also very good in, in resisting torsion so that you can spin on your foot more easily and is part of a suite of evidence that Tyrannosaurids and Ornithomimids and a couple other groups mm -hmm. uh, were actually more agile for their body size than other carnivorous dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this, you have relatively higher speeds, relatively more agile. We had a paper uh, last year that was part of a big team that was working on that that actually showed in Tyrannosaurs there's a whole bunch of sort of dense ligaments that were packed in in between the metatarsals to sort of hold them together, which mm -hmm. is you know, independent evidence that it's resisting the torsion as it's twisting, that those ligaments are holding that foot together, even though it's longer and more slender. Mm -hmm. And so, um, um, so those sort of things sort of held, held together in terms of, you know, my initial, you know, publications in the mid nineties and research from, from before that. Now, some of the stuff I proposed didn't, uh, wasn't supported by the evidence. And this actually ties back with that with phylogenetic analyses. And okay. at the time, we knew a lot about the late representatives of all these groups. Like, you know, we knew about Truodon, and we knew about Tyrannosaurus and Gorgosaurus, and we knew about Ornithemus and Gallimimus and so forth, but we didn't know about their early Cretaceous and their Jurassic ancestors. Mm -hmm. And so all these late Cretaceous forms have this specialized foot. And so the analysis found that they were all each other's relatives, and that this foot evolved only once. But Starting in the late 90s and continuing the last couple decades, we've begun to get a lot more early Cretaceous and late Jurassic and even middle Jurassic representatives of all these groups, and none of them have this kind of foot. Mm. And so that showed that it actually evolved uh, independently. So instead of showing that the 
creatures with an arctometatarsus form a, an independent group, it shows that they are independently converging on the same answer. So, which is actually evidence that it's for a particular function mm -hmm. because they're evolving it independently uh, That's to really solve a similar problem. And they're actually all evolving at a smaller body size. It turns out when we find tyrannosaurs from the, from the early to late Cretaceous transition, like Moros, who shows up in the most recent Jurassic World yes. movie, that it's a, it, it, this metatarsis, specialized metatarsis, occurs at small body size when you can really take advantage of fast running ability. And then Tyrannosaurus inherits it. You know, it's not going to be as fast a mover at giant body size, but at younger individuals and its smaller bodied ancestors could take full advantage of it. Mm -hmm. So your uh, your truodons and your ornithomimids, um, to suggest that they were well-balanced and nimble and agile animals is probably not too challenging, but scaling right. any of those animals up into a Tyrannosaurus category animal, when you, when you were making those associations and, and seeing the similarities, was there, was there a challenge in agreeing, like, hmm, this seems... <laughs> Could this guy also be as nimble as, theoretically, the, the bones suggest that these otherwise animals, these other animals are easily acceptable to, to say that these are probably quick and easy. T-Rex, though, is big, <laughs> really big. Yeah, exactly. The, well, the thankful, thankfully, we have, you know, tyrannosaurids of intermediate size in between mm -hmm. um, that sort of show, and so I could show mathematically that they're scaling along the same curve, that they're not, Tyrannosaurus isn't somewhere off the curve. It's simply, if you, if you take that foot and have it on an animal of that body size, this is the shape it becomes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had, you know, Tarbosaurus adults and Gorgosaurus and Displetosaurus and Albertosaurus adults, and then we had juveniles of Gorgosaurus and Albertosaurus and Tarbosaurus that helped fill in those gaps. And now that we have youngster Tyrannosaurus, they help, they're along that same curve. And in fact, when you get down to a smaller body size, where Tyrannosaurid specimens and Ornithomimid specimens overlap, they have exactly the same proportions. Really? Um, so that shows that they're, the Tyrannosaurs are just taking that scaling on up. Yeah. And in fact, it turned out that um, O.C. Marsh, the 19th century paleontologist, had collected and described Tyrannosaurid material, possibly even T-Rex, in the 19th century. But because it was foot bones, he didn't know what it was, and he described it as Ornithomimus grandis. Right. He thought, because of the similarity of the foot bones, that this was simply Ornithomimus grown huge. Additionally, this is before anyone had a complete skeleton of an Ornithomimid. So um, he describes in 1896 that you know, Ornithomimids were the most rapacious predators and the most fearsome foe of the Ceratopsids, which someone, if you know, someone from the 20th or 21st century reading it would go, what the hell is he talking about? Mm. What were they doing? Looking at it, but not <laughs> understanding that he wasn't able right. at the time to distinguish Tyrannosaurids. And he interpreted the fossils well. He just didn't name it correctly, <laughs> which is exactly, fascinating. It's yeah. really interesting. Amazing for them because they had such less to work with. That's so crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the theories I like about Tyrannosaurus, I think I first read it uh, in Steve Brissati's Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. And this kind of segues mm -hmm. into more the, I call this the gregarious Gorgosaur, but, uh, and I think other people mm -hmm. have, that um, because there is a kind of a lack of smaller or moderate theropods in the late Cretaceous, that perhaps that niche is being filled by yes. juvenile Tyrannosaurus-ish, Tyrannosaurids. And so 
if they were working together, you would have a very nimble, very quick Tyrannosaur that could perhaps catch up to a prey item, slow it down, oh, pester yeah. it, and then the, if they were li- working in a family unit or a mixed uh, mixed category, the larger Tyrannosaurs would then arrive and further impede this um, this this bigger animal, and then. What I what, all I can imagine is then out of like the canopy of trees above you, the the full adult eight ton tyrannosaur comes in. He's not as fast as the others, but he gets to the scene, and then Steve describes this puncture and pull attack, which would be like yep. an excavator uh, taking a hunk out of you, <laughs> and uh, and as a group, just that would be the death knell <laughs> of this the right. final one that where you can't get away because the others are pestering you too much, and it finally catches up. And as a group, they would be horrifying to anything yeah exactly yeah so we do have evidence in at least um in albertosaurus and in uh teratophonius so another tyrannosaurid of multiple individuals of different body size different body sizes preserved together at the same site and so that suggests that at least some tyrannosaurids had brute behavior now it doesn't mean that necessarily all of them do after all you know a lion is a pack hunter, a tiger is a solitary hunter, mm-hmm. and yet their skeletons are practically identical. So we <laughs> might not be able to tell them apart from their skeletons. But it shows that at least the, the group had this potential. And yeah, going back to the late 90s is when uh, Phil Curry actually first sort of suggested this with regard to Albertosaurus, that you might have the younger, more nimble, uh, mid, mid-aged uh, you know, teenagers harassing a herd um, you know, separating off some part of it, and then the adults waiting to to take out the big individuals that maybe the juveniles couldn't take out on their own, which is certainly a not unreasonable um, hypothesis. An alternative um, idea, as not mutually exclusive, because again, it might be true of some tyrannus. This might be true of some tyrannus, mm-hmm. and the other or another, is that they didn't necessarily live to get all of them lived together as groups, and it's just that the young tyrannosaurs of some species were off, you know, competing with dromaeosaurs when they're small, and mm-hmm. then they get to sort of Jane-sized individuals, and they're chasing after ornithomimids and pachycephalosaurs and, you know, baby dinosaurs and so forth. And then when they're big enough to be the big bruiser adults, that's when they start hunting adult duckbills, adult ankylosaurs, adult triceratops. So... A tyrannosaur in particular, and all, all big carnivorous dinosaurs went through a huge size range, mm-hmm. uh, but tyrannosaurids in particular show a lot of anatomical transformations, uh, particularly with regard to things like bite force, as body size increases. Um, and suggests that, you know, to me and to others as well, that like alligators, like Komodo dragons and so forth, they were ecologically different animals at different stages of life. Uh, even though biologically they're the same species, <laughs> that's that's fascinating. I, the Tyrannophonia sounds like it's a Bertosaurus just with like that Groucho ma- Marx mask on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, we're we're so straight out of time. Um, I wanted to I, maybe we can last on this. Um, sure. There 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 is so much that 
so much evidence, so much argumentation, so much data that needs to be collected to make a, a scientific assertion to be challenged. But then also there are things that, you know, you believe to be true or you hope to be true or you fantasize to be true, but you, you could never publish on because there just isn't data. And that comes into these, these, uh, these organizational dyna dynamics and biological relationships. What is, what is something that you believe in your heart of hearts is true about about dinosaurs that you could never publish on, but something that you just feel like, man, I, I believe this about dinosaurs. I would just, I would love to know. Somebody spent their whole life thinking about oh. them. What is what is a fascinating thing that you just believe yeah. to be true about them? Right, that's a good question. Huh? <laughs> a lot of, you know, some of these things that you know I've you know thought you know in my heart of hearts that you know might be might be true, uh, but it'd be hard to demonstrate, are actually sort of getting mainstreamed now through things like, you know, prehistoric planet and so forth. And one of those is that despite spending, you know, 150 years as being perceived as giant evil monsters, that, you know, theropods and other dinosaurs were probably, for the most part, you know, caring for each other to some degree, you know, maybe not to the same degree that uh, certain mammal species are, but, you know, more so than a crocodile or a, a monitor lizard. And this might include parents and offspring, but also within a herd or within a pack. There's sort of a more social aspect to them. You know, we can infer some aspects when we find skeletons together in the same depositional event that strongly supports that they died together and therefore probably lived together, especially if you have multiple occasions of that. And if they show display structures on them, that that's suggesting that there's a strong sense of sociality within them. Mm -hmm. But those are sort of impossible to directly see. It's the sort of thing that if you were, um, if you were working on modern animals, you would you expected to go out in the field to show that to your colleagues. And we can't do that <laughs> without a time machine because they're not, at, they're not doing any sort of interacting right now. They're just lying there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And related to that might be that at least some dinosaur species extinct dinosaur species almost certainly mated for life. You know, it'd be extraordinarily difficult to show. Mm -hmm. But given that there are other types of animals in which this is true, and dinosaurs were around for a long time, and some of them were in social structures, I think it's quite likely that at least some of them had long-term paired relationships. So... Really interesting. It would be, as I said, almost impossible to demonstrate. Yeah, how would you so. know? Well, that'd be easier yeah, than exactly. having to... It, I, you see the, the marks on a Tyrannosaur face, and you think uh, maybe it's easy to just turn their trust once. <laughs> and then you give me... Yeah, your... exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, we have uh, a morning dove that's uh, brooding over uh, a chick that hatched just the other day. And it's mm. just under our deck, and it's been fascinating to watch. But uh, I understand morning doves mate for life as well. And uh, yeah, we found the, hmm. the egg shells uh, on the other side of the yard. So that's been a fun little activity well, to watch these morning doves come along, these dinosaurs come along. So that's been that's been a lot of fun too. And it sounds okay. just like the type of tyrannosaurs you're describing. So that's great. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever other dinosaur, Ty Tyrannophonuses. Exactly. <laughs> the imposter. Uh, well, thank you so much for all the time that you don't have. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. I hope, uh, I hope you had a good time. Yeah, I did. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Cool. Well, thank you for making some time. I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you. And a big thank you to Dr. Tom Holtz for joining us. That was awesome. Today we have uh, the, the summation of uh, the chapter Return. We're just covering the last half of that. But we also are going to cover uh, what the sixth iteration tells us 
as well, which is uh, printed on page 315. The sixth iteration says systems recovery may prove impossible. So we're near the end of the iterations, and I think we can start tying these things together and making sense of what they're saying and what they mean. If my interpretation is correct, that these are excerpts from Malcolm's report to InGen on the viability of Jurassic Park and what chaos theory has to say about it, then this is Malcolm's prediction that systems recovery may prove impossible. So the story of Malcolm's report is this. At first, during the earliest plotting of the graph, quote, at the earliest drawings of the fractal curve, few clues to the underlying mathematical structure will be seen. In other words, everything will seem fine at first, or as the graph is plotting, its true shape does not yet reveal itself. And recall, Malcolm is very good at interpreting graphs just by their shape, without even looking at the challenging math. Quote, with subsequent drawings of the fractal curve, sudden changes may appear, is what we're told in the second iteration. Or in other words, changes or surprising unpredictable things, but perhaps banal things too, may suddenly start being evident in your system. Recall in this model, the system that's being analyzed is Jurassic Park. By the third iteration, quote, details emerge more clearly as the fractal curve is redrawn, suggesting that the overall picture with warts and all begins to present itself. You begin to see a more realistic vision for the park. By the fourth iteration, quote, inevitably underlying instabilities begin to appear. And then in the fifth iteration, problems become severe. And by the sixth spin around the sun, quote, systems control may prove impossible. That's right here. Modeling Jurassic Park through chaos theory suggests that controlling the system, quote, may prove impossible. And upon Malcolm's inspection, he specifically states, quote, from my point of view, such an undertaking is impossible. The mathematics are so self-evident that they don't need to be calculated, on page 90. In response to Gennaro uh, during the When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth chapter, which is when, if you recall, Gennaro had just charged the consultants with the task to evaluate whether or not they believe that Jurassic Park is safe. That is why they're on the island doing an, an inspection. The movie adapted this very specifically and adeptly. The film truly captured Malcolm's message very well when he says, John, the kind of control you're attempting here is, uh, it, it's not possible. And, and then Sattler reaffirms it with Hammond when she says, you never had control, that's the illusion. But forget the movie for now. Malcolm's report said it was impossible. And Malcolm takes one look at the place and agrees there are far too many variables. Too much reliance on the animals behaving predictably, when the reality is that the animals are completely and utterly unknown commodities, thus entirely unpredictable. Yet their systems are designed as if the dinosaurs are going to behave in a certain way. So these iterations have been describing the collapse of Jurassic Park as we're witnessing it kind of in real time, which is pretty interesting. Uh, moving on from the iterations, we're continuing with the chapter Return, spanning from pages 317 to page 344. In the synopsis of this final segment, uh, Grant and Gennaro make it back to the visitor center, Tim and Lex make it to the control room, and Ellie escapes with her life. Characters. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant comes to the edge of the maintenance building and peers into the fog on page 335, and he can hear the raptors snarling and he watches them run by. Gennaro is scared, but Grant convinces him to follow him to back to get the power on, on page 336, and Grant and Gennaro arrive at the visitor center, observing the raptors trying to break in, on page 340. Lex Murphy. Lex and Tim exit the cafeteria and head to the second floor of the visitor center on page 338. They enter the control room, and Lex steps on another severed ear, on page 339. Lex finds a crackling radio and can't figure out how to turn it on, on page 340, and Tim snatches it away from her. They argue like children over it until Muldoon yells into the radio, and that startles Lex enough to drop it. Uh, Lex gets rambunctious and just starts tapping the screen uh, when they're trying to get the computer going on page 343. And can you imagine this girl? She just banged away at the screen, but she gets lucky. And one of her choices leads them to where they want to go. But let's be very clear. She was lucky. In the end, there are no moments left to spare when the Raptors are coming through the bars and they and they, they save some time here out of dumb luck, which is pretty good for them, I guess. Tim Murphy, Tim and Lex are... Uh, 
He's with Lex, so that some of this is a repeat. Tim and Lex head to the second floor into the control room on page 338. Tim remembers much of this area from the tour. They're looking for a radio. They can hear the raptors approaching and slamming into the glass to enter the building. And so then they enter the control room and find the computers on. Tim is excited about that on page 339. Quote, he had seen complicated computers before, like the ones that were installed in the buildings his father worked on on page 340. So, recall, it's my theory that Tim's father was Richard Murphy, named as the architect from Dunning Murphy and Associates, who designed the Visitor Center and Safari Lodge. So, it's fortuitous that Tim may actually be somewhat familiar with the systems that his father would install, or would have installed, at facilities that Dunning Murphy and Associates have designed. Pretty cool. So maybe he has seen this system before. That is a, a, an advantage that isn't quite well explained by Crichton, but if we were to spend as much time as I do to look at the book, it reveals itself. Uh, Lex finds a radio, and he and Lex fight over that radio until Muldoon interrupts him on page 340. Tim is told that nobody is left alive who knows how to restore the power at the, uh, or operate the computer, so Tim's going to have to figure out this all on his own on page 341. He accepts the challenge and settles in to figure it all out. And figuring out the computer is one thing. Actually, just navigating the computer is the first challenge. Tim can't figure out how to even interact with the system to start on page 342, but discovers that it is a touchscreen that uses infrared technology. Now, we haven't witnessed Arnold or Nedry operate the computers like this, but apparently this is what they've been doing the whole time. Uh, as he's rebooting the system, the urgency of their situation becomes clear. The boat is about to reach the shore, and the raptors are about to breach the lodge. So there, there is no time. Ellie Sattler, quote, there's no problem. Everything's under control. I know what I'm doing. Guys, you hear what she's saying here? Sattler is very close to dying. You can't say this kind of stuff in Jurassic Park or you get canceled. But instead, Wu has a greater critical flaw than Sattler and his role in allowing Jurassic Park to become a reality must be judged by poetic justice. So upon Wu being attacked, Sattler screams and she sprints along the inside of the fence to escape on page 335. So she sprints, hearing only her own breath, she runs. On page 336, rounding a corner, she sees a tree, leaps, grabs a branch, swings up, and without panic, but exhilaration, kicks her legs and hooks them over a branch, climbing further, and we get a full description of her body and how it works like a gymnast ascending this tree. The raptors climb the tree after her. She leaps from the tree, scrapes her face, but feels nothing but exhilaration. This is like a game. She reaches a door to escape, but finds that it is locked. It takes a moment to, for the gravity of the situation to settle in. Game over. Sattler faces the raptors who are moments away from tearing her apart, and there's this thought in her mind, one that's accepting her fate, a feeling like, go figure, this is how my story ends. But this moment is surrounded by this strange euphoria and exhilaration for some reason. None of the other characters have felt this empowerment while they were being attacked by the dinosaurs, but Sattler does. And it's this presence of mind, this feeling like it's all a game, that it's crazy to think that this might be somehow how she will die. And she rejects it all. It takes one last kamikaze effort to escape, sprinting to the ledge of the building, knowing that the pool was too far to reach by jumping, but does it anyhow on page 337, and she survives the jump into the pool and wonders if the raptors could make that jump too, if they could swim, and she figures, sure, if I can do it, they definitely can. And note, the raptors don't have to jump into the pool, they just jumped off the roof onto Dr. Wu without any trouble. Jumping down to the ground is no problem for velociraptors, but instead of jumping down to her, they hear Harding at the door that was locked just earlier, and she climbs out of the pool and rushes back to the lodge. Robert Muldoon. When the kids fight over the radio, Muldoon chimes in that he doesn't understand what's going on on page 340. And so Muldoon connects with Tim, but they have to admit nobody left alive knows how to restore power to the park. It's up to you, Tim, on page 341. 
That's Muldoon's contributions. Donald Gennaro, when they see the Raptors run by on their way to the visitor center, Gennaro doesn't want to go in that direction. He was okay with following Muldoon, but isn't ready to follow Grant. And understandably, this is just after he survived being directly attacked by a Velociraptor in the pitch dark of the maintenance shed's sub-basement on 335. But he faces his fears and follows along. Gennaro is a trooper on page 336, and Grant and Gennaro arrive at the visitor center, observing the Raptors trying to break in on page 340. Harding! Harding finds Wu after the Raptors leave the skylight on, on page 335, and he worries that Sattler may be in trouble. Harding goes and finds Wu uh, to say that the Raptors have left the skylight, and, uh, and if the Raptors have left the skylight, they might be heading towards where Sattler is making the distraction. Uh, he, he rallies Wu to go to the door to get them, and Harding seems shocked that the Raptors jump down off of the roof to capture Wu when they do. Uh, Harding heard Sattler pounding on the door to the roof, so he runs up the stairs two steps at a time and throws open the door to save her on page 337, which is bad because she has already escaped, but the Raptors are still up there, and they come for him instead. He's slashed across the chest with a tearing pain on page 338, and before he closes the door with all his might, Muldoon reports that she is safe, and Harding gets the door shut, but... Had he not done this, the raptor surely would have pursued Sattler over the edge of the lodge and got her. So Harding saves her, whether he realizes or she realizes or not. The Velociraptors. Uh, there are signs that the raptor in the freezer is calling out for help, and the raptors can hear it. Quote, they'd fall silent and cock their heads as if listening to something distant, and then they would make little whimpering sounds on page 340. Quote, it looks like they're trying to get into the cafeteria, says Gennaro. And of course, we know the kids are upstairs, and the other raptor is in the kitchen freezer. So if they're trying to get into the cafeteria, they're not going for the kids. They're going for the raptor that's trapped. The raptors can't break through the glass, though, but they're able to jump up to the second floor balconies on page 340, and they enter the visitor center in this way. We have localities in this uh, back end of return. Uh, the second floor of the control of the visitor center. Uh, a glass-walled corridor runs the length of the building on page 338. Down the hall, there are doors labeled Park Warden, Guest Services, General Manager, Comptroller, and then a restricted area requiring a security card, including the control room, where we get our best description of this room yet. Quote, in the center of the room was a console with four chairs and four computer monitors. The room was entirely dark except for the monitors, which all showed a series of colored rectangles on page 339. Also, there's an, another severed ear in here, too. Punta Arenas in Costa Rica. Um, this locality is seen in a video where the ship is almost reaching the shore of Punta Arenas, and it, it, this is the ship that has all the raptors on it, and Tim could recognize it from flying over the day before. The, the, the area of Punta Arenas he recognizes from when they flew over on the helicopter. And the boat appears to be just minutes from landing. Stylistic techniques. Uh, we have italics. Uh, the first instance here on page 336, another locked door becomes italicized. The door was locked. All in italics. Is Sattler finally having the gravity of the situation connecting her to reality. She's trapped with two raptors and no escape. The italicized mention of the door is the third mention of the locked door, but the italics are the indication that the implications are finally setting in on her. Quote, the raptors were closer, starting to move apart, and illogically, she thought, in italics, isn't this always the way? Some little mistake screws it all up on page 337. So there are two parts of this that I don't quite understand. The first is, why did Crichton say her thoughts were illogical? And second, what little mistake has screwed up her escape? First, let's deal with the illogical comment. In, page, in episode 51 Control, Malcolm was chatting with Sattler, and he mentioned that logic was believed to provide some element of trueness into mathematics. But quote, now we know 
that what we call reason is just an arbitrary game. It's not special in the way that we thought it was on page 312. That's the only other mention of logic in this novel, so has Sattler made this thought illogically because, as Malcolm suggested, reason has been abolished by modern thought, believing all things are arbitrary and there is no inherent trueness derived from logic? Or is Crichton saying that it's illogical for it to be in humans' nature to shrug in the face of sudden catastrophe? Like, perhaps we're to read that in Sattler's shrug and thought go figure, just as she's about to be killed, that this is human nature's means of coping with a surprising moment of catastrophe, and that this coping mechanism is therefore illogical. I don't know. In any case, it's all italicized in this very strange wording, and it's followed by, what the hell, on page 337, as she throws her life over the side of the building in a last-ditch effort to land in the pool and continue her escape. Can Raptor swim in italics? She wonders before concluding, sure, probably. She's not safe yet. Colon! They came to a glass partition marked with a sign, colon, closed area authorized personnel only beyond this point, on page 338. Uh, and the colon presents an artifact in the sentence, and this artifact happens to be the sign that they are reading. There were rows of colored labels on the screen, colon, on page 339, and this colon introduces a whole series of screenshots of the computer program. Quote, but then he saw something else, colon, Numerals clicking in the upper left-hand corner of the screen on page 340. And here the colon presents something as well, um, and the post-colon uh, data is what is being revealed. So here the colon is used consistently in, in three similar ways. Every time it is shown, it then presents uh, a figure for us to interpret. Semicolon. Quote, there was a door on the roof. Semicolon. She could get inside on 336. First a statement, and then what it means to us. Quote, Tim remembered this area. Semicolon. He had seen it earlier during the tour on 338, and he remembers it, and so should you, as it was on the tour. Uh, the semicolon here, again, uh, presents some data and then relates it to our, our heroes in a way, um, joining two clauses together. Ellipses. Then, ellipsis. I don't know. On page 334, says Gennaro. The ellipsis representing a pause as if he's thinking of an answer, but comes up empty. Remember, Gennaro doesn't answer questions. He asks them. As Lex and Tim walk down the corridor in the visitor center, the time spent between signs on the doors is represented by an ellipsis, indicating it takes a few steps or whatever to get to the next door. That was interesting. Uh, they're out there, ellipsis. On page 338, stresses Lex, hearing that the raptors may be coming to the visitor center. Quote, the power must be back on, ellipsis, on page 339, is Tim making a great realization and leaving all the implications unsaid, of which there are many. Quote, I left the kids in there, ellipsis, on page 340, says Grant, the ellipsis leaving unsaid that if the raptors get at the kids, that'll be bad news. Quote, turning on the main grid, ellipsis, you know anything about computers, Tim? On page 341, the ellipsis suggests that Muldoon stop and figure out if describing things to Tim will make a difference, if he even knows anything about computers before going on. Quote, red light all around the borders of the screen. Ellipsis. What could that be? On page 342, the ellipsis could represent time spent considering the observation. So here the ellipsis isn't so much omitting words, it's uh, they're indicating pauses, dramatic pauses, representing time spent between making statements and stuff like that. So the ellipsis is, at, at no point here has been really omitting anything, it's just been people either trailing off or pausing. M-dashes, quote, they looked basically like this, M-dash, a lot of colored labels, M-dash, but they were usually simpler to understand on page 340, and here the M-dash serves as a parenthesis mark but we don't use parentheses uh, in this book for any reason at any time. Quote, there were only 13 minutes left for the boat, but he, M-dash, but he was more worried about the people in the lodge on page 340. The M-dash here is replacing punctuation like a comma, perhaps with a bit more separation and pause than a comma might. There's 
Some more radio static expressed by the M dashes. Where you know, is that you, Tim? On page 340. Thankfully, Crichton is Tim and Muldoon be more effective at depressing the transmission button, and there's less static between the comments than with the others, who apparently just start jabbering away before they've depressed the button all the way. So fewer words are cut off now in this conversation. Quote, Malcolm lying in a bed, M-dash. On page 343, the M-dash indicating that the images on the screen are flipping, interrupting the next image, the next image, um, things like that. Exclamation, the screens were on, exclamation mark. They, that could only mean, on page 339, is Tim's surprise and delight. He loves computers, and it's good that they are on. Lex finds her voice after also finding a radio, and so, of course, the exclamation marks come back. It's mine! I've found it! I get to use it first! And, of course, Tim needs to respond in kind. Give me that! Give it to me, Lex! Give it, Lex! And, of course, the people on the other end of the radio are confused. What the hell is going on, yells Maldon. All with exclamations. And Of course, it was a touchscreen! with exclamation marks on page 342. I think these exclamations are more for our benefit as readers because it's tricky to figure out this stuff, um, but the exclamation gives us a clear indication of how things work. But also, like the exclamation helps us say, ah, here is the answer. And it's like a, it's like an arrow pointing at uh, the words that we need to focus on when we're reading to, to stop and take a moment and go, ah, here is the answer to the problem that we've been having. So Crichton does a good job there. Uh, multi-text. There are a few diagrams of what the computer screens show Tim on page 339, and this is a Jurassic Park startup system, and then a new screen that says, you already have access on page 342, which is good. Had Tim required a password, that would have been awkward. <laughs> then there are subroutines on page 343, lots of confusing setups. It's not especially user-friendly, let's say, and you have to know the short form for everything to get around in the system. But we get to see the t system instead of having it, I guess, described in a, in a paragraph, which would be boring. Capitalization, the sign which reads, When dinosaurs ruled the earth dangles from a hinge creaking in the wind on page 318, which is presented in all capitals, so you don't have to confuse it with dialogue or narrative. Thank goodness. Uh, then a bunch of signs are listed on page 338. Park warden, guest services, general manager, comptroller, as well as closed area. Authorized personnel only beyond this point. The signage is all in capitals. It's all made very clear. The computer commands are all in capitals too. Revert, reset. The computer is now reset. Remote. Shipboard, VD and VND, etc. These are all capitalized, so we know it's from a screen or something, and it's distinctly not dialogue and it's not narrative. So um, the capitalization is useful in terms of identifying text. All right, discussion. Let's talk about the dinosaurs in this chapter. Uh, we get dinosaur spores in the dark tunnel, which are crusty and white, similar to that of a bird on page 317. We can infer two things. Uh, from this, that the velociraptor spores are white and crusty like a bird, and that the raptors were evading the park's motion sensors and getting around the park via these tunnels as well. The velociraptors are certainly conveyed as subterranean animals in this novel, and when the velociraptors attack, when velociraptors attack, next on Fox, we can compare how the raptors attack Sattler with how they're described earlier on the tour. The first animal charged from the foliage at the base of a tree to the left. It sprang forward. The second attacked from the other side, clearly intending to catch her as she ran, and it leapt into the air, claws raised to attack, and the animal crashed down in the dirt. Then all three slam up against a fence on page 325. In the chapter control way back on page 115, when the tour visits the raptor pen, the attack is almost the same. It's very quiet, and then uh, the sudden and coordinated attack comes from the left, and right. The charging raptors cover 10 yards to the fence with shocking speed on page 117, and they can leap bodily off the ground and strike with what are described as big dagger-like claws on their hind legs. 
The twin bursts of hot sparks and further distinction of a third animal suggest that only three raptors strike at them during this encounter, and the third strike comes at chest height from the final raptor. So this is very similar to what uh, Crichton portrayed in the first time around, which is consistent, and all three hit the fence almost simultaneously, just like it did the first time around. So the raptor attack, Crichton's already done this scene, but this time uh, the stakes are much higher, so it's really, really good. Poor sense of smell. Quote, all the books said dinosaurs have had a poor sense of smell, but this one seemed to do just fine on page 329. What books declared dinosaurs to have a poor sense of smell, I wonder? That's a significant claim to make. I've only ever heard of studies which identified that dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus had awesome senses of smell, although pre-1990, I don't know. I don't know where this part came from, but perhaps it goes to show these are the real deal. These are the real deal. These are authentic dinosaurs, and screw what you think you know about them. They have surprising qualities you didn't realize, and in this case, it's to your detriment. So in any case, this is just another example of saying everything that we thought we knew about dinosaurs might be wrong. These are the real deal, and they're behaving in new and surprising ways, which is consistent with what Malcolm was saying. You're not going to know what they're going to do. They're going to behave unpredictably. Rows of razor-sharp teeth. Again, I don't quite understand how there are rows of teeth in the mouth. The teeth in the mouth of an animal, and in you, and me too, you know, they're in our mouth, sort of like in a circumference of our jaw. They're not in a row, nor are they in multiple rows. They aren't. And, and neither are Velociraptor's jaws. It kind of conjures this image of a shark's mouth, and you can kind of picture these with, with jagged, stabbing teeth, and directly behind or below them, another row of teeth, and below that, more and more. And it's like this terrible series of arrowheads rototilling uh, with the, without the rotating part, I guess. Uh, but to me, the phrase rows of razor-sharp teeth is a tired cliche that may never have truly depicted what it meant to depict. And now it's just this expression that's devoid of meaning and empty for the purposes of imagery. And it doesn't scare me. It doesn't make sense. Recall our interview in the last episode with Dr. Ali Nabavizade, many dinosaurs had replacement teeth coming up from the roots beneath the presently active teeth. In some extreme instances, for example, in hadrosaurs, they are lengthy columns of teeth that continuously push out of the jaw towards the chewing surface, almost like, well, like a Play-Doh factory or something like that. There's a great source of teeth, and they're continuously working their way to the front of the queue, but that isn't a row of teeth. It's a column coming from the top and the bottom, but not from the back to the front in rows. Again, this, this concept of there being rows of razor-sharp teeth is inappropriate, but astoundingly, it's so common. Uh, real, authentic dinosaurs. Wu admits he feels a mysterious question of whether the animals were behaving authentically or not. Quote, were they behaving as they really had in the past? It was an open question, ultimately unanswerable, on page 334, but he finds that their successful breeding, quote, represented tremendous validation of his work on page 334. To me, plus the Dilophosaurus mating dance and the other unexpected behavioral challenges throughout the park suggest that all the park's control mechanisms have been a failure and that the dinosaurs are to be read as authentic representations of the past. Wu says he's uncertain but this page just finished telling us that he's entirely unconcerned about their behavior because he can't adjust it genetically. But to discover that the animals can breed both discredits his control mechanisms entirely, but is a tremendous validation of the cloning process. I believe these dinosaurs are to be read as real dinosaurs, not genetically close enough, nor hybrids with elements of frogs, reptiles, and crocodiles spliced into them. They're real dinosaurs. Doing the math, recall there were eight man-eating raptors that are attacking personnel at Jurassic Park. Muldoon blew one up on page 304 and shot one in the leg on page 307, which we presume is down in the generator building. And that leaves six raptors left, two of which are up on the roof of the lodge chewing through the bars. 
Four unwounded raptors are left unaccounted for as we start this chapter on page 319. After the distractions, Sattler thinks three animals here at the fence and two on the roof. That means one was still missing on page 325. She somehow accounted for the raptor that nobody knows is down in the maintenance shed with the injured leg, except Arnold and Gennaro, but at this point we're both presumed, they're presumed to be both dead. So good for her, I guess, for knowing that. Uh, that one missing unaccounted for raptor is in the cafeteria with the kids, we learn, on page 329. But Tim and Lex take care of it, locking it into the freezer on page 333. That's two down, six remaining, three at the fence, two on the roof, and one in the maintenance shed. All eight are accounted for. But uh, page 334, the injured raptor is missing again. Whereabouts unknown. With the quantity of procomsignathuses in the sub-basement of the generator shed, and they're fully accredited as being scavengers, it's possible... The injured raptor died down in the sub-basement, and the Procomps Ignathuses came down to eat it. That's possible, but unconfirmed. And then they, they trap uh, Gennaro inside the truck. That could be, but but that's never really explained. Uh, then the two raptors leave the skylight. One kills Wu, and after the three at the fence run back to the visitor center, that leaves the one injured one that might have been eaten by the Procomps Ignathuses, and the second from the skylight unaccounted for. I guess. Or maybe the two of them from the skylight ran up the tree and back to the roof? It's hard to know where they all are, but I think we're still tracking them. Um, everything should be okay. <laughs> uh, park management. We, we also got a list of other job titles that you could expect people to be performing at Jurassic Park via the offices on the second floor of the visitor center. There's the park warden. There's guest services. There's a general manager. There's a comptroller. And then there's restricted access. And beyond the restricted area is the park supervisor, operations, and main control. So there are other offices, if you were to imagine uh, people running this park, they said that it could be done with 20 personnel, I think, without uh, the resort staff. So it said in, earlier in the book, I think that the 20 people could do the operations. That doesn't count the hospitality staff. I don't know if Ed Regis is counted in hospitality or operations. But um, yeah, so these are some of the other offices that uh, people would be performing. Island Layout. And in episode 19, Jurassic Park, we're told they come out of the mountains in the north, first to the tennis courts and swimming pools on page 85. From there, you can see the Safari Lodge. So from the swimming pools and tennis courts, you can see the Safari Lodge. Then they're in the lodge, and then they're at the visitor center. No directions are mentioned. And in this chapter, we learn not only can you see the Safari Lodge from the pool deck, right? When they came in, they said, oh, we can see the Safari Lodge from here. You can jump from the Safari Lodge roof and into the pool. So like... Yeah, you can see the safari lodge from the pool. <laughs> they're right beside each other. <laughs> they're like 10 feet apart. So, or maybe 15, but let, I mean, they're right beside each other. Yes, you can see it from there. <laughs> uh, I guess the visitor center is the most southern feature in the visitor compound, and everything is to the north. And especially north of the animal enclosure through a bamboo thicket is the Velociraptor holding pen. Uh, what this suggests is that the Safari Lodge is south of the Velociraptor holding pen, but north of the power plant and maintenance shed, and it seems to reason that the visitor center is at the southern limits. And this sort of makes sense. The tour in the Land Cruisers exit on an automated railway from the basement of the visitor center and directly south into the park. Remember, things go south as soon as they go on the tour. As <laughs> we sign off today, I want to give a special thank you to Dr. Holtz for finding some time for us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. If you want to do it, do it soon. This is episode 54. There's only about 
65 episodes planned because uh, we run out of chapters real soon. The Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, the Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Inventory, and the Worst of Them All, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. Or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. Until next time.